This is episode 10, Managing Risk at the Executive and Board Level with James Tunkey, Chief Operating Officer for Ion Asia. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome to episode 10 of the Business of Intelligence podcast, the podcast that explores the field of private sector intelligence and how intelligence helps organizations navigate risk and realize opportunity. And Michael and I do that by interviewing industry experts, leaders, and practitioners who are pioneering the field. And Michael, we definitely have an industry expert and leader up next. Yes, indeed, Ryan. James did a really great job, and I'm I'm excited for everyone to get a chance to hear what he has to say. For anyone who has been listening, we have ended up taking a, a, a little bit of a pause due to the invasion of Ukraine and the tragedy that subsequently unfolded there. But we are definitely back and we are ready to roll out our next batch of episodes. And we've got a great episode in store with James Tunkey. So, Michael, what struck you about this episode with James and why was it so important to talk to him? Ron, I was really excited when uh, James agreed to come on the show and his episode definitely did not uh, let me down. It's fascinating to me because he really opened up the aperture to a broader look at uh, risk and how intelligence plays into it. And um, he just has such an amazing background of experience, education, and, you know, he really brings a, a appreciation of education and professionalism that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And for those of you that might not know James, let's tell you a little bit about him. So James Tunkey is Ion Asia's chief operating officer and head of the America's offices since 2004. James is an experienced risk management executive and qualified risk director, which we're going to talk about. He helps Ion Asia's C-suite clients take advantage of global growth opportunities by performing due diligence. He also supports new IPO and SPAC issues on U.S. and foreign exchanges, corporate offices and venture funds, accountants, and legal advisors. James is a certified fraud examiner, and he specializes in white-collar investigations that have a link to Asia. So that's what you would all definitely find out if you looked up James online. But what Michael and I think of when we think of James is someone who is a lifelong learner. We think of him as someone who loves what he does, someone who gives back and provides the larger risk management community with a lot of thought leadership. So you all have to check him out on LinkedIn. And he's just that person that you call when you have a really complex issue or problem and need someone who can help solve it. So without further delay, everyone, please enjoy episode 10, Managing Risk at the Executive and Board Level with James Tunkey. James, welcome to the Business of Intelligence podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Ryan and Mike. Thanks for having me. We're so grateful to have you. We really appreciate your time. You know, during the intro, we acknowledge the fact that you're the COO of Ion Asia, but we're also joking because we said James is the person that you call when you have a really difficult problem and you don't know exactly who to call to help solve it. So for everyone listening, can you start by just describing a little bit about what you do and what Ion Asia provides? A lot of what I do is solve difficult problems in the security and risk management space uh, that internal teams can't solve themselves. You know, I work with executive leadership, CEOs, general counsel, CSOs, and business leaders, and um, there's three essential elements of organizational success. Uh, you know, it's team, uh, timing, and technology. And most of my work is focused on, on the, the truth that uh, a good team is the, at the heart of, of any organization's success. I would agree with that 100%. You know, what else struck me when we previously spoke and getting ready for this episode, you said, you know, what we do is a source of strategic advantage. And I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. I was wondering if you could Maybe talk a little bit about that or wh why you think that is. Well, that's a, a big question. So much of what risk managers do, security officers, people in the business of intelligence and 
um, those adjacent functions, compliance, they're traditionally seen as a cost, but they're not. They're really about the preservation of capital so that the capital can be deployed in a smarter way than the rest of the competition. And so if you get really good at risk management and you can see the risk better than your competition, you can do two things really well. You save the company's pennies uh, for a rainy day and you use your expertise to help the company spend those companies to make a profit and um, uh, generate a, a higher return than its competitors. I love that. And I just, for everyone listening, I want you to take note of what James just said, because one of the things we hear over and over again is how a lot of times our functions or functions adjacent to us are framed as cost centers. And so we need to change that conversation. We need to change that paradigm. And James, I think what you just said in terms of how you frame that is it's well said. We need to use that. So one more quick follow-up on the intro. And then I guess, guys, we'll just break into sort of general risk management discussion topics. But you've got such an interesting background. I know you do a lot of interesting work. So what does a typical day or maybe even like a typical week look like for you? Well, the, the typical day is uh, divided into uh, helping respond to uh, new problems that problem of the day might be a, a security or a compliance issue in a mine in Africa. And then the next day, it might be a fraud or corruption challenge uh, for a company in, in Asia Pacific. And then it might be protection of an executive's information. My typical day is working with my wonderful team at Ion Asia uh, to respond to client challenges. And um, what that may be really depends on, you know, what the challenge of the day is for our customers. And as I started in the beginning of the sort of program here to lay that out, you know, as a consultant, we've been in business now for 20 years. Uh, we're a third party that provides security support, uh, investigations, due diligence, background checks. You know, we're doing uh, litigation support and the problems we get called for are, you know, they're they're not stuff that people can solve through a standard, regular, uh, planable program. You know, if there's a, a standard, regular, planable program, typically it's handled internally. And where we get the call is when something's too funky or not something that somebody inside has an expertise to handle. And so in some ways, that's the wonderful, fun part of the job is that we get the stuff that other people can't handle internally. And that's not necessarily topic or challenge predictable, but what is predictable is the how we solve it with the team that we've got. And you know, I think our approach to how we respond to challenges is pretty unique. Hey, James, how you doing? This is Mike Mallard, good to see you. Nice to see you too, Mike. Uh, when we previously spoke, uh, you shared a philosophy that risk management is not about looking at the negative. It's about identifying opportunities so you can be less bad than your competition. Personally, that's a strategy I love. And I, I was just wondering if you could share how you came about that philosophy and, and why it's a more productive way of looking at things. Well, less bad is one part of the coin. Again, there's also growing more sustainably than your competition and pursuing growth is the other side of that coin. When it comes to to being less bad, went from a risk management perspective, really the philosophy comes from an understanding that if you are better at risk management than your competitors' peers, you're going to have a more predictable set of corporate earnings, inherently going to have fewer unpredictable losses than your peers. And what that's going to mean is that the investment community, whether they're shareholder investors or providers of debt capital, are going to require a lower risk premium uh, for your company than for another less predictable company. You know, if you've got predictable earnings and you're able to generate predictable operational results, inherently, you know, that's going to require a lower risk premium. And so by being, by focusing on this less bad than your competition, by understanding what are the risks in your industry, in understanding how your competitors lose money, and really focusing on being better at losing less 
than your competition and being more reliable by being less bad, so to speak, you're able to position the company to raise money more cheaply, which is you know incredibly important, particularly in a in a day and age when interest rates are rising. We're definitely moving out of a time when you know f- there's free money, and so risk managers actually play an, an essential part of the the financial planning roles within the company because good risk managers can deliver more reliable uh, results and and hopefully save enough money that can then be reinvested in growth. I'm just taking it all in because it is very fascinating to me. And a follow-up question to that, when you're dealing with a new customer, how difficult is it for you to articulate that and explain, you know, to explain to them where the opportunity is that they might not have seen before? How do you sell your value proposition to them? Well, most of the day-to-day, that value proposition is already baked in. We are hired because we are able to communicate that we can solve a problem faster, better, more reliably than whatever our corporate competition is. And proof is in the pudding. We deliver the results. You know, I think we're in our 22nd year of of business. If we were not able to do that, we'd be out of business. So then I think it's, it's understood from a problem solving perspective. We're, we're extremely capable from a from a diligence perspective. I think that it comes in sometimes in how we assess risks when we're looking at um, the backgrounds of potential acquisition targets or we're looking at the backgrounds of, of potential senior executive leader hires that we would vet their backgrounds or, you know, uh, new companies that are going IPO because, we might look at whatever it is, the criminal record history or the litigation history or somebody's reputational profile, and we might see a completely different sort of set of risks or lack of risks compared to other service providers. And, you know, again, we're 22 years in the business, so we've got a, a a set of clients who trust our opinions and and make you know some pretty big business decisions based on our diligence reviews and so I don't know if the, if it takes a lot of convincing I think people trust us and trust our our past performance and you know they people listen to us before they sign any agreement with us and understand where we're coming from and you know we're we're good listeners with our clients too so we spend a lot of time listening to where our clients see themselves and what they know about their own business. And so, you know, we're not in the proselytization or education business. We're in the get things done and and try to relay some unique expertise that somebody doesn't have internally. As a risk management practitioner, speaking of that, can you please talk to the idea of effectively framing the future for your organization? And why is that so important? Well, framing the future for our own internal organization really is all about figuring out where there's going to be future need for our core problem solving and research capabilities. And so we're looking at where the future is going to rhyme with history, if not necessarily a repeat history, and then figuring out the services that are going to be required for the future based on those forecasts. And we're entrepreneurial. We're doing a couple things at once. We are not quitting the hits that we've got, you know, so we spent a, we've historically done a tremendous amount of, of work in, in due diligence for companies that are going IPO, for example, that's a hit for us. And uh, we're not about to quit that anytime soon. We're not going off and, and doing other things. We do a lot of work around education and uh, preventing cheating and preventing internal fraud and internal threats where there's this problem of internal corruption. This is something that we're, is unfortunately a perennial problem. But then there's other stuff that comes and goes uh, that we spend a bit of time uh, taking punts on as our own company where we think we want to build out a capability. Sometimes that uh, works extremely well and, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's all part of being focused on growth is being willing to take risks on ourselves. And so when it comes to sort of large corporations and how to frame the future, you know, I think the sort of classic business intelligence function, corporate security has to be directly connected with those within a company who are also inventing new products and thinking about the future. Because, you know, if you're not part of the conversation about 
what's happening next, then you truly are going to be stuck in the past and, and not be a, a dynamic contributor to the company. Before I forget, guys, I wanted to flag one thing for everyone listening. So we hear the catchphrase, you have to know the business that's thrown around at every conference we attend and in various conversations that were happening. So when James was talking about framing the future of your organization and connecting to those people that are doing it, so you know what's going on and you can provide value, that's one area that we're talking about. And if you can't connect with those people, there are other ways to understand your business, what your organization's strategy is, what does the future look like? So I just wanted to flag that really quickly for everyone as a call out. But Michael, go ahead. I know you had at least one more to get to here. I'll just piggyback on what you just said, Ryan, because um, it's so critical. And we were talking about that earlier, just amongst ourselves, is that, uh, I mean, you got to think when we say you have to know the business, I mean, when you're looking at operations in, in or lines of businesses and different companies, you're looking at people who have been doing that work for 20 years. You're not necessarily going to be able to get to the same level of knowledge they are, but the closer you can strive to get there, the better you can understand their problems and be able to answer the gaps they have. And that's where we can bring the best value as intelligence professionals. Professionals. You know, one thing we always have a side joke with James. One of my favorite things about him is he is a master of metaphors. So uh, sticking to the baseball metaphors, James, that uh, you, you've said before, you know, in our conversations, you've said that, uh, you know, in all your work dealing and briefing CEOs and board members, you know, to, to really to really gain their trust and respect, you have to play at the major league level. And if you could just share some lessons learned with, uh, you know, how you've been able to reach that level and, you know, just to kind of share with the audience ways that they can connect with uh, se very senior stakeholders and gain credibility. Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. I have been working since I was 12 years old. Uh, my great grandfather, who founded National Car Rental, was still alive. And I still remember going and visiting you know, his lots when I was growing up and meeting his friends and uh, uh, the people that worked for him and worked in my mother's shop, as I said, beginning at age 12 and was running one of her businesses by the time I was 16. So I was, you know, pretty comfortable in a leadership role even before I graduated high school. And I think that I'd seen successes and failures uh, with different entrepreneurial endeavors within the family and had an opportunity to uh, really see successful entrepreneurs growing up. So I feel very comfortable working uh, with other leaders. So personally, uh, I think that's a part of it. And I think it gave me a lot of comfort and uh, trust in myself when I moved to China to finish my undergraduate work that I could strike out and do something big and, and give it a go and it would be okay. And that sustained me. I'm a very hard worker. I try to work intelligently as well as uh, with integrity. And so I think leaders see that. And when I offer an opinion to other leaders, it's based on a ton of preparation, you know, just like a ball player would have been working since age four uh, at a ball field to try to make something work by the time they got to age 30. You know, I, I invested a lot of time in being prepared to have high level conversations and have invested in my education and worked real hard. So there's that. And then I think, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to work with a good partner in our business, somebody whose judgment I trust, who also works extremely hard and also is a, a fierce advocate uh, for clients. And I think people see that and see us working well together and have trust that uh, we're gonna deliver results with a team that is oriented towards client success. And then on top of that, I think I spend a lot of time uh, listening and understanding that executives themselves that we work with, you know, they're going to Davos, they're extremely well-informed, they're on boards. I'm certainly aware that the people that we work for can be as well-informed and as well-resourced as I might be on any particular challenge. So I think that just to cap that, it means that when we approach an assignment, we know that we have to bring our A-game. We know that the we're not just only as good as our last job. We know that the current job is going to is high stakes, involves high stakes leaders sitting at the table expecting us to do our best. 
you know, it's our responsibility to orient our team towards delivering to those expectations. That is such a great laundry list of tactics for everyone listening. And James, you reminded me of, of a lesson I learned early on from a, a C-suite member who pulled me aside and said, listen, you, you have to tell me something I don't know. I know this topic very well. I've, you know, this is not my first time around the block. Or if you're going to tell me something I already know, you need to give me a different perspective. You know, one that I'm not thinking about or an angle that I'm not seeing. And I've, I've carried that with me ever since. So I appreciate those tactics. I think those are fantastic. I know we have some people listening that may just be starting their professional career who have never briefed you know, anyone at a senior level. So just a quick follow-on question. I mean, take us inside the room of, let's say, a, a CEO's office or a conversation that you might be having with a board member. What types of questions do they ask you? Or, yeah, I don't know if there's any just insight you can share into those types of conversations, but I want to try to paint a picture for somebody who may be just starting out in their career. Well, as I said, we've got three core areas where we're spending a lot of time. First is risk assessments based on background checks or due diligence work. And there, there's a, a few client types. You know, one client type is a senior leader who has entrusted an executive team to identify a new opportunity and comes to us because they there's a level of trust that we're going to really kick the tires independently and look for, I don't want to use the word necessarily fraud, but you know, look for things that may not be quite right or might be risks that the executive team hadn't thought about because they're caught in their own bubble or they're entranced with the possibility of getting a deal done or there's some family relationship that has created the, the deal opportunity. And so for those people, we're either delivering a confirmation that everything looks okay, we're delivering, hey, this X or Y executive doesn't look fantastic and the business has got some challenges and we're hearing that you know, some of the, the, supply, uh, the supplier relationships may not, may not be fantastic. And in those cases, you know, we're just part of the process. So the executive that hires us really has probably already suffered a tremendous loss or seen a peer lose their reputation from a bad deal. And so there's a level of sensitivity to getting things right. And so uh, we're a part of a process that's designed to be slightly independent. And um, there's a respect for our professionalism and our judgment. Sometimes the deals go ahead and sometimes they get adjusted based on our input and sometimes the deals don't. So for that client type, the conversation tends to be very professional and focused on preserving reputation and preserving the ability of the firm to make deals in the future because if there's a lot of bad deals, you know, the companies go out of business. So that's client type number one. And so for that specific client, it's all about the thoroughness of the process. You know, who are the people that were used? You know, we go into sources and methods and it's all about both. You know, who were who these sources that were spoken to? What were the methods that were done? How reliable are they? Then there's a second type of executive who we typically work with who has suffered a, a loss. They've been defrauded. Somebody is trying to extort them. There's a, a very fraught um, set of circumstances. There might be litigation. And for that client, the focus is really on can we deliver results better than X or Y other source that they may have on hand. And a lot of times that for us, it's not just about who we know. It's really about our past experiences. Have we solved problems like this before for other executives. And, you know, just because one person is being extorted doesn't mean that's the first extortion ever. Just because one person has suffered from a fraud loss doesn't mean that this problem hasn't occurred on, you know, many other times in the past. And so if, you know, we see nearly a, a thousand general cases a, a year, it's not a ton, it's not too little. And so we've seen plenty of other cases in the past where 
we've solved those problems in the past. And so for in that second client type, it's about how did we solve that problem? What did we do to gather the unique insight or uh, what was the best path to um, solving the problem? And I think that for those clients, they're really looking for uh, for proof that we've got uh, what it takes to help alleviate their problems and their pain. Yeah, James, you just made so many great points. You know, I, it's something I just wanted to point out to the listeners is that uh, I just want to hammer home is what you emphasize on really understanding the stakeholder you're briefing, because whether, you know, if you're coming from a human intelligence background in the government or you're in private sector intelligence now, you know, if you're trying to make an impact to a decision maker, it's really imperative to understand their background, their education, things that they're interested in, because by understanding this, you can start doing research and starting to get to a level of understanding of what they know and what might be potential gaps. And that way, as you mentioned earlier, you or Ryan might have mentioned it, you can either answer something they might not know or potentially provide greater context on something they do know. And I think that's where it really comes to adding value. So no, I just wanted to emphasize that to the audience and uh, turn it over to Ryan because I know we had a question coming up. We did want to ask, you know, what is the value of having China expertise and how should we be thinking about China from a risk and opportunity perspective right now? You know, growth in China has been one of the greatest achievements of the, the modern age. You know, China is a major global market and a major trading partner that cannot be ignored. And there have been dramatic literacy rate improvements uh, for a major portion of the world's population in China, big rises uh, to participation of women in the workforce through China's development, and improvements to the quality of global life, to peace and prosperity for the last 40 years. And there's no doubt that there's been a lot of good that was achieved. And foreign capital COVID aside, continues to be invested in China. And um, I think China is an incredibly important part of the global economy. My current perspective is that American invested capital has delivered tremendous benefits to the American consumer, uh, the American pension holder, and to the average person in China. Capital gets invested and local labor you know, does benefit. And where we are right now is, I think, sometimes dismissing all the advantages that we've won through global trade. And certainly policies can be reconsidered for where they work and where they don't. But, you know, I I think the Chinese economy is incredibly important to the planet. And it's important to think very carefully about how to work with China. Hey, James, kind of kind of taking a different turn here. You know, one thing Ryan and I are both looking into on a personal and professional level is the metaverse. And uh, for our listeners out there, I mean, the metaverse is still kind of a vague uh, concept, but, you know, I think kind of the industry standards for it is uh, certain technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, web 3.0, this kind of this convergence of technologies that are starting to create 3D worlds where people are are kind of starting to congregate, meet, do commerce, social events, gaming, and uh, it's kind of starting to take a life of its own. And, and just from like a business intelligence space, you know, we talked a little bit about it offline, but, you know, if you could kind of share with listeners where you think this is going, where do you see the business opportunities here and how do you think it'll affect your work? That's uh, a fun question. I probably have three broad answers. I think the first is that the metaverse is going to be a haven for the criminal element. The criminal element is going to co-opt a a large group of consumers into becoming co-conspirators in various crimes. We know that these co-conspirators are going to be young. They'll be thinking about cheating and stealing as anonymous in the metaverse and that they deserve something for free. And I mean, this has been the case since the early days of Napster and the internet. And then there's going to be investor scams and consumer frauds. And, you know, the recent NFT marketplace changes have already increased my conviction there. So that's the first point, haven for the criminal element. I think the metaverse is then going to also be challenged by either a loss of privacy, if it's coded to include facial micro movement and other sensor data that, you know, allows for observations 
and or reduce trust and integrity if the human aspects of trust building and lie detection are not incorporated and or you know, further acceleration of trends in the slicing and dicing of communities and subgroups that only talk to each other. And I think the third sort of general prediction is that it's going to be the greatest opportunity for intellectual property lawyers since the dawn of sheet music. But all those three, where do you see, uh, do you see greater, the same or less uh, cooperation between uh, the private sector and the public space, law enforcement and such? I think a lot of people are metaverse curious right now. I don't know if they're metaverse cooperations. Those are all interesting takeaways. And I mean, honestly, I what I heard was a testimonial for all of us listening and all of us who work in this space to study this further. I think we need to add this to our reading list, our professional development list. And there's a lot to learn because I think there's going to be a lot of risk and opportunity in that space. So really good stuff. I think um, observation and monitoring of people using sensors and participation on platforms that enable remote communication interpersonal relationships, you know, is a trend that's here to stay, Ryan. And I think we always have to be on top of how new technologies are used for good and bad. Yeah, this is but one of many challenges. I think, honestly, that's a great segue just to talk about professional development in general, because you've had this incredible professional journey and an incredible sort of path with regards to your education and training. Let's explore that a, a little bit. I mean, we've gotten the impression from talking to you that you absolutely love what you do. It's one of the reasons why we really wanted to talk to you. But is that true? And if so, maybe just share a little bit about why you love what you do. I love chasing bad guys and I love <laughs> fixing problems for people and I love figuring out what's really going on. So I remember being recruited to do what I do and sitting at the table with the gentleman who brought me into this business. And um, he was talking about Chinese triads and I was talking about military controlled businesses in Asia Pacific. And geez, that that was almost 30 years ago. And and since then, I, I've had a chance to you know, work in, I don't know, 60 countries or thereabouts and um, have uh, been very fortunate to do a lot of really great work that's had an impact for people. And um, what's not to like about that? You know, I think in a little bit, we're going to ask you what you wanted to be when you grew up. I can't wait to hear that that answer. But I want to get a little bit more specific with regards to your professional development there was a day where I was on LinkedIn and I came across something that you posted and it was about your qualified risk director designation. And within five seconds, I was Googling that. I was so intrigued. I wanted to know what it was. So what does that mean? And can you talk a little bit about the role of the DCRO Institute? And for those listening, that acronym stands for Directors and Chief Risk Officers. But can you talk a little bit about the Qualified Risk Director designation? Sure. I pursued the Qualified Risk Director designation because I um, felt I was ready to serve on more corporate boards and the boards of listed companies in particular. And there's a growing trend for including on corporate boards people who understand risk you know, that doesn't necessarily mean people that are doing quantitative modeling. I think risks depend on each organization's uh, business. And I looked at a variety of different offerings and felt that the qualified risk director um, designation and the coursework there that was offered by the DCRO was really the best fit for me. And it's a professional designation uh, that's conferred by the DCRO Institute that recognizes a distinguished ability to link corporate strategy to positive governance of risk-taking. I really was attracted to this idea of the positive governance of risk-taking, that you're not just focused on the negative of the risks. I think we've already talked about that. So it fit very well with my worldview. And the designation is granted to C-suite and board uh, leaders uh, who you know come from a variety of different backgrounds, but are generally business focused. And you know I've gotten a lot out of the certification process, and highly recommend it to you know any 
listeners who are thinking about what the next steps are for their careers who are at a senior level and prepared to really have a seat at the board level. I appreciate that recommendation. I I think this is one of the coolest little gold nuggets I've come across in some time in terms of development opportunities. So really appreciate that. And for everyone listening, I mean, you can just Google the site, just Google Qualified Risk Director, Google DCRO Institute. There's a, a number of different courses. One that caught my eye right away was around geopolitical risk, but there are many others. So really appreciate the insight on that. Yeah, the course directors are you know, people who've served as chief risk officers for some of the world's largest financial institutions, largest operating companies. It's truly a diverse uh, group of professors and people who've been practiced in risk management for decades. And so I think it's it's worth looking at. It was worth looking at for me because, you know, I've spent really the last, I would say, 20 plus years focused on the intersection of, of financial risk management and what you call the business intelligence function, a corporate security function, really after the 9-11 and the a long-term capital management's blow up, uh, there was a sense that risk management needed to be more standardized within financial institutions. And so the Bank for International Settlements, which is a super regulator, moved to standardize the quantification of loss data and approaches to operational risk management that uh, were were really an exceptional set of standards uh, for that applied to people in our industry. You know, because they were touching on internal and external uh, fraud losses, losses from natural disasters, terrorism, and other things, and so. You know, in 2001, I did a a longitudinal study of 60 years of lost data of Hong Kong's 30 largest listed companies for every major loss that any of those companies had uh, suffered across industries using the Bank for International Settlements approach. And I've used the understanding, which has been updated by our teams over the last, you know, years to really put some lost data next to what the risk projections are and my risk management advice that I give to clients on where to set up shop in Asia is based on some pretty hard numbers and isn't just based on uh, wild ass guesses. And so I think that involvement in that research led me to be involved in the Professional Risk Managers International Association where I was board nominated by the by Permia to be the regional director and first in Hong Kong and then of their 10,000 plus financial risk managers uh, in uh, New York and uh, served on a variety of, of senior boards there. And the DCRO is a sort of a successor in some ways to the work that I was focused on at Permia. I, I appreciate all that. I also appreciate evidence-based decision-making over wild-ass guesses. So I, I would second that motion. You know, I was going to say, actually, before I ask the next question I was going to ask, I, I wanted to just uh, circle back to an alibi f- to our listeners on the metaverse. It took me a minute to remember the title, but, you know, something worth following up on just from our, our discussion is there's a, there's a sci-fi book called Ready Player One. 2011 by Ernest Klein, and then Steven Spielberg did a film adaptation in 2018. It's not necessarily the greatest movie, but it's kind of fascinating if you watch it because it kind of touches on a lot of things that James mentioned, and it's just kind of a good uh, thought piece to start your journey to learn more about the metaverse and kind of see a sensationalized part of it, but there are some real issues that it does raise. I guess follow-up to the, uh, the DCRO portion We also saw, James, that you're a fellow certified fraud examiner, CFE, and uh, you're definitely active in the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners community. That's the ACFE for those who aren't familiar with it and its chapters. And uh, first question on that, what made you choose that certification? Well, I was put forward to a membership by a former supervisor. I just uh, finished uh, succeeding with a large asset search on behalf of a Southeast Asian nation, and I'd found about $2 billion, and my work had been the subject of a cover story in a pretty major magazine. And uh, 
It was a success. It was a win. And the CFE has given a lot to me over the years uh, in terms of an opportunity to work with peers who understand fraud. And it's a very practical designation. Today, I'm really focused on giving back to that community with training. And, um, you know, what I've gotten out of out of my sort of CFE designation is really a lot of tools for investigating frauds and for thinking about fraud. You know, for some of our listeners who maybe are more on the uh, the private sector intelligence uh, side of the field, might be more analysis focused or briefing or in different parts of the corporate security or the greater intel side. How would you explain how that designation and the knowledge that comes with it could help improve their roles as uh, intel professionals? I think fraud examiners are focused on preventing loss and recovering from loss in a unique way that tends to be tied to money. And, you know, businesses tend to care about money, sometimes uh, <laughs> less than other things. And so I think for folks who are looking to make a move to other parts of the business, the CFE is, you know, it's widely applicable to all sorts of business functions in a way that I don't think some other designations that are chosen within the security space are. I think the the CISSP is very widely uh, transferable and is an interesting designation today. So if you're technologically savvy, that's a maybe an alternate that I think, you know, can be transferred from department to department. But for those like me who are interested in uh, figuring out where did the money go and where is the money going within a business, um, the CFE is a good, solid certification to pursue. Hey, certainly last but not least, let's talk about USC and your MBA. And I apologize, you're going to have to correct me, James. Is it Trium MBA or Trium? Depends who you ask and in what language. So let's just talk about that. You have this MBA, you pursued some post-grad studies at USC's Price School of Public Policy and Public Safety Leadership, which I think is fantastic. Can you just talk a little bit about what you've learned from those two programs? And I know you had previously said you wanted to highlight maybe some values or pitfalls that have stood out to you just from your overall development journey, but let's close the professional development section by, by talking about those two things. I was young and was finding it very difficult to advance in the organization that I was working for without a graduate degree. And there were people around me who I felt operationally, I couldn't hold a candle to what I was capable of, but they had an extra couple letters. And, you know, I, I wanted to move up in my career. So that's why I I pursued an MBA and I pursued an executive MBA because I love what I do and didn't want to give up my day job. So Trium was very special. I was deeply grateful to have been included in the in the Trium's inaugural class. You know, they threw our, their very best professors at us. And so I learned financial risk management at NYU, amongst other things. You know, I, I learned from the best in production and operations at HSA Paris and you know, I really understood the global trade system structure and governance after uh, studying at the London School of Economics. And I, I recommend a, a just formal education and I'm a big believer in it. So can't say enough nice things about Trium. I happen to have been, the bet seems to have paid off. It's, it tends to be ranked fairly high year after year, usually in the top three globally. So, it, you know, it was, a, it was certainly a punt in the beginning, but it's, it's paid off pretty well. And great group of classmates, and I, I learned a ton. You know, just on that note, I mean, do you think that proved to be a competitive advantage for you where you were at the time? You know, it sounded like you, you wanted something to help you get ahead. I mean, obviously, I think it helped you develop professionally, but what about that competitive advantage? I looked at U.S. programs, Europe programs, U.S. Asia, U.S. Europe, and, you know, Trium. England is very different from the rest of Europe. That's absolutely true. And the French way of thinking is truly unique. And there's a lot of great companies that come out of continental Europe. And 
I didn't want to be siloed with just a U.S. centric education, but I felt the financial parts were really important at NYU. So I did my homework and I looked at the different programs, thinking very carefully about what types of advantages they would give me and how I would be perceived at the end of the program in the eyes of others that I, I think people need to carefully consider. Well, listen, I think that's great advice. I mean, I know this is a common conversation for people that are working who may feel stuck. They're considering additional educational you know, pursuits or goals. And sometimes I think maybe jump a little bit too soon. So I think that's great advice in terms of carefully thinking that out thinking about what the return on investment is going to be for you. Anything on USC? I know you had an interesting experience with the Price School of Public Policy and and Public Safety Leadership. Any key takeaways from that that you want to highlight? Sure. I mean, I've pursued education throughout my career. I think it's important for people to continue to invest in themselves and their own growth. I recommend it. I went back to school to go to the Price School to participate in its public safety leadership program, which is most of my classmates were law enforcement professionals in California. And I did that really because the Price School's got some real expertise in teaching new methods and new approaches to policing nationally and internationally. And I felt after George uh, Floyd's murder and the defund movement's emergence that it was important for me to understand what the best practices were in in, uh, public policing. And I used it to uh, think through what would be the implications for uh, the private security sector. You know, if you think about police departments with all their resources and training, and they still were where they were after George Floyd's murder, you know, what does that mean for the average guard force uh, that's paid far less and given far fewer resources? So I I used my time there to think that through, and I, I hope that it's made me a better risk manager. I want to wrap this section up. I know this might not seem like the cleanest segue question, but there's some themes that I've been hearing throughout and during some of our previous discussions, some characteristics that stand out to me. I know you have an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, you had that since I think you're a young kid. I know that creativity is very important for you. And I also know you have this growth mindset. So why do you think those traits are important in our business or in business in general? Why do you think it's important to have those things? As somebody who started working in a family business and saw what the responsibilities of of ownership were like and what the risks were that were taken as an owner. I always felt that in people inside of big companies that I saw didn't necessarily have any safer or more secure lives than the average entrepreneur. The days of the job for life are over. And so people that are, they're probably all taking the same risks, but if you're working for a larger company and you're not being compensated in stock, you're not getting the upside the employer is. And so I just felt that from my side that a good understanding of what your contribution is and what risks you're taking as an employee, as a worker, as an owner, they're essential. And, you know, creativity is all about, you know, finding where tomorrow's revenue is going to be and chasing it. And, If you're creating an idea and you're pursuing something that's fresh and new that really syncs with solving a need, you know, has a big demand, I think that you're you're on the road to something good. And, you know, a successful entrepreneur really solves for problems that have a big impact. And this takes creativity. I mean, this sounds to me like something that a successful business intelligence professional should be good at. Well said. Way to wrap that up. (laughs) I love that. Michael, go ahead. James, just kind of pivoting to our challenging the status quo section, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit throughout, but as intelligence practitioners and risk managers, what's something we're collectively not thinking about right now that we should be thinking about? You know, I think that there's always a concern that a lot of people are coming from the same places. And as intelligence professionals, I've seen a lot of people get recruited who come from roughly the same two or three places. And that's going to have an influence on how people are perceived, uh, what their job function is going to be, and what the total value of the 
teams or the total potential for the team is going to be. And so I think the sort of orthodoxy of where people are coming from, where they're recruited into this role does have, you know, some biases that need to be addressed. And, um, you know, there's really an importance also in uh, talking to people, you know, just in general. Uh, I think that there might be some challenges within the industry with an over-reliance on open source intelligence and less time being spent going and talking to enemies, working in other cultures, uh, traveling uh, to work with new people and working with local teams and figuring out how to trust people who come from different places. You just hit some, uh, you stole me some follow-on questions, but I'm really glad because I think, you know, the over-reliance on open source intelligence is something that, that can't be hammered home enough. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's something we definitely need to work on as a community. I'm seeing what, what a lot some, are, of opportunity right now outside of working uh, with open source uh, data. And I don't think we've even touched the surface yet of the opportunities for people with the business intelligence skill set to, you know, to solve tomorrow's business challenges by using other data sources, particularly satellite and, and signals type sources. Maybe we have a follow on episode here because I'm secretly obsessed with open source data and open source intelligence, and I'm really intrigued now. So guys, let's have another conversation maybe down the road about this. I think others would love to hear about it as well. I think that, you know, if you look at who's hired, you know, the guys who used to be able to read satellite images, they rarely get the top job. And one wonders uh, whether that is going to be the pendulum is going to swing another way in years to come. Same with people who work with signals. And when you think about the growth of the Internet of Things. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Brian, Brian and I are always talking about it. And I'm always hammering home asset validation and vetting sources. And, I, you know, I still think sometimes OSINT in certain cases, we don't do it enough. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think that'd be a good follow on episode to, for the three of us to chop at. Kind of similar question, James, but just kind of turning on its head a bit. What's something you think we're currently doing, but it's just not working in our field? And how do we change it? Well, I'm really interested in YouTube videos and crowdsourcing and the whole glitter bomb chasing of people that are stealing stuff from the porch and how that's a business model, to me, I think is incredibly intriguing. And so how to harness a large number of crowds on an open platform to chase down bad guys and solve problems for the average granny who's having, you know, the box stolen from the front porch is not a business model that I think enough people are paying attention to. And I think uh, the advances recently in crowdsourcing, not just on the Panama paper side and the use of, of these types of platforms to dump information, but you know, even with the January 6th crowdsourcing of data, I think that there's a, a lot of things that people are not doing yet to solve shared business challenges using the same type of approaches. So if we know that we've got certain threats in a community or that are uh, faced by an entire sector, this type of cooperation on a platform would seem to be possible. And I don't see enough exploration of that yet. By the way, guys, since we started recording, I had a delivery downstairs. I don't know if you heard the doorbell and I'm I'm very stressed right now because it's just sitting out there in the open. So, and Sports I don't pirates already. I don't have a video camera. So, <laughs> I was literally thinking, should I put myself on mute and run down there real quick and grab it and come back up? But it's okay. It can wait because we are at the rapid fire round section, which is always a lot of fun. So, Michael, do you want to do you want to kick us off here? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think, uh, you know, James, since you're, uh, we're now 10 or 11 episodes in, you know, we, we have some of the same questions, but definitely, uh, definitely switched it up a little bit. So first one I'll hit you with is if you had your own intro song for the podcast, what would it be? Yeah, I think if money wasn't a challenge, I would ask uh, for the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme. I think we could <laughs> both go with that one, too. Absolutely. <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Wanted to be any character played by Harrison Ford or Humphrey Bogart, and preferably in a job outside of Buffalo, New York, where I grew up. 
What's your favorite place in the world? And if there were no limitations and you had one option, where would you travel next? Oh, I would definitely be sailing on the Long Island Sound instead of talking to you. Uh, that's yes. <laughs> really <laughs> on the Long Island Sound side, not the Connecticut side. You know, I'm very fortunate. I've I've been to Lake Como. I've been to so many beautiful places in the planet, and not enough nice things are said about good old Long Island Sound. I agree, 100. percent Strong Island, as we like to say. (laughs) What is something you've always wanted to be good at, and right now you're just not? Uh, Telling jokes. I love to laugh. I'm terrible (laughs) at telling jokes. I'd tell you to try one now, but yeah, probably not a good time to jump into it. <laughs> Don't do not set James up for failure. This yeah, yeah, no, no, is going don't so do it. Well. Don't do it. <laughs> what book or article should we all be reading right now? I'm really a huge fan of the new book called "Can Trust Will," which is hiring for the human element in the new age of cybersecurity by Lisa Garber and, and Scott Olson. Uh, Scott's a dear friend, and this book is really phenomenal, and I highly recommend it. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Don't get married. (laughs) You know, actually, if you don't mind elaborating, you and I have actually had this before, and I really liked your explanation, if you don't mind giving it again. You know, so many people in law enforcement or folks that I've worked with over time, and a lot of people come from really high-stress jobs and that tends to spill out in their relationships and sometimes people get jaded and they they make awful advice and one particularly jaded ex-colleague of mine once gave me that advice and it was that it was truly the worst advice that ever been given it's super easy to to relay that and then last one before i turn over to ryan who is someone you admire and why I just say that I really admire the people that I work with. We're a team of near 50, and we've been at the desk throughout COVID during quarantines when other people have not gone into work. Everybody else has been at the desk every day and working hard to solve problems that other people can't solve. And so we're we're kind of out there trying to help. And I work with people who really give their all, and I admire that. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a great answer. Okay, last rapid fire round uh, question, James. So a call to action. So we're broadcasting to the entire world. Everybody who's influential that you can think of is listening. What would be that message that you'd want to get out to everybody or a call to action? Well, I encourage people to reach out to me if they've got any questions about where I'm coming from. Engage me and follow up if they have a question about what we do at Ionasia or, or uh, about my career choices. I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn or respond to emails if people reach out. And I just, you know, based on this call, really want to encourage people to consider a future where uh, more business intelligence professionals are sitting in board seats and are engaged in working with the business at a, a senior level. And hopefully we've been able to help set some examples and, you know, set a path for people. And, and that involves, you know, working your ass off, working smart, that's for sure, and pursuing education and really maintaining good conversations with folks like you. I think it's all of us uh, have to help each, uh, help each other and lift each other up. So well said. I, I think Craig Singleton, who was on our very first episode, or at least our first guest episode, said that the, we're part of a guild. And we need to stick together and support one another. And I think that's a great message. We're not that a guild. That's a serious challenge. And I think it's one that you probably should spend another follow-up episode on because a guild has certain requirements. It has certain standards. It has then, I think, a broad uh, recognition and is able to create some you know, for lack of a better word, pricing power with the the purchasers of the services. And, you know, there's a, you know, we, we talked about qualifications, we rattled off all sorts of choices. And the medical guild has one qualification, you know, it's (laughs) and we're, you know, the accounting guild has one qualification, it's called CPA. And so I think we've got a lot of choices and I don't think we're yet at a guild. And I think that might be worth some additional introspection. 
It's funny that you say that because one of our future episodes is going to be on professionalizing the field of, of private sector intelligence. So we'll have a little bit more on that later. So thanks for setting that up. Thanks for the uh, promo. But James, you've been incredible. You've been incredibly patient with us. We had been looking forward to this for a long time and you did not disappoint. So thank you so much for everyone listening. You can obviously Google Ion Asia, but www.ionasia.com.hk. James is very active on LinkedIn. As you mentioned, James, you know, please reach out to him, connect with him. He's a great follow. I mean, that's how I found out about the DCRO designation. I learned a lot from just sort of following James on LinkedIn. Again, we're so grateful for your time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will be back soon. Thanks again. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys.